Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in-depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA, and a three-year certificate prioritize experimental learning and perception. Beginning in fall 2021, the Studio School welcomes artists from around the world to join its inaugural virtual certificate program. Combining the studio-centric emphasis of the school's teaching methods with an individual real-time approach to online learning, this full-time program is designed for serious artists and dedicated aspiring artists who seek to cultivate the studio skills and methods that will prepare them for a lifetime of art making. The priority application deadline is April 30th, 2021. Apply online today at nyss.org. Lonnie Graham is a photographer, a Pew Fellow, and professor at Pennsylvania State University. He's a former director of photography at the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, an urban arts organization dedicated to arts and the education for at-risk youth. There, Lonnie developed innovative pilot projects merging arts and academics, which were ultimately cited by then-First Lady Hillary Clinton as a national model for arts education. In 1996, Lonnie was commissioned to create the African American Garden Project, which provided a physical and cultural exchange of disadvantaged urban single mothers in Pittsburgh and farmers from Maguga, a small farming village in Kenya, to build a series of urban sustenance gardens. In 2005, Lonnie was cited as Artist of the Year in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and presented the Governor's Award by Governor Edward Randell. He served as a panel member for the Pennsylvania Council on the Arts and National Endowment for the Arts in Washington, D.C. Lonnie is the recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Pew Charitable Trust Travel Grant for Travel to Ghana and is a four-time Pennsylvania Council for the Arts Fellowship recipient. His book, A Conversation with the World, has been published by Dats Press in Seoul, Korea. That project seeks to reveal our common humanity through interviews conducted by Lonnie with individuals throughout the world. He recently delivered a TED Talk on economic disparities of artists in modern culture. Other exhibitions include an exhibition of photographs at the Goethe Institute, Accra, Ghana, an exhibition of collaborative portraiture in Christchurch, New Zealand, and a group of works at the Culture Silo in Maritopola, Oulu, Finland, a full-scale reproduction of one of the educational galleries in the Barnes Foundation shown at La Maison des Etats-Unis in Paris, France, an exhibition of larger-than-life photographs at the Toyota City Museum in Aichi, Japan, as well as a room-sized installation featured at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Lonnie's work can be found in the permanent collections of the Addison Gallery for American Art in Andover, Massachusetts, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art in Philadelphia, PA. 
I caught up with Lonnie for a talk about his history with photography, taking the bus to the city as a kid, San Francisco in the 70s and his community there, his many travels around the globe and his time shooting in Africa, drumming, and much more. Here's our conversation. Low flying waterfowl, or what is that? A chicken? Or? That's a turkey. Just want to let you know, there's a turkey behind you. <laughs> Get off! Get off! <laughs> you know that know story. Had, I didn't know you had turkeys. I'm trying to repopulate the Wissahickon. Sure. We got. I don't know where you are. Where are you? Are you in New York? Brooklyn. Yeah, you don't have the spotted lantern fly. No, we don't have that. The spotted, what was it? Spotted lantern? It's, it's horrible. It's heinous. It's this little, I don't, you're not old enough to remember the Japanese beetle. But it's, they're almost like locusts, but they're like half the size of locusts. And they're almost, they bore, it's like borderline pretty. It's like pretty the way that like honey is sweet. You know, it's just like, they're just too weirdly pretty. Okay. So, and then they get, and then when there's a thousand of them a day, they're just like insane. They so, wreak havoc. Oh yeah, yeah. And then they secrete the sweet, sticky stuff all over everything, and it kills the it kills everything, trees. But anyway, that's another whole story. But the turkeys will the turkeys will eat the hopefully the turkeys will eat the spotted lantern flies. Oh, there you go. So that's the whole deal. That's why you have turkeys. That and yeah to repopulate the Wissahickon. Sure. So where are you? Where do you, I don't know where your place is. This is the historic Lafayette Hill in, uh, on the outskirts of Philadelphia, just near Plymouth meeting where the home of, you know, the, those famous abolitionists from the 1600s and the Lafayette Hill. That's where the Marquis de Lafayette engaged he came to molest the British as they were going out Germantown Avenue. And they, it was a foggy morning. You know, they always attack in the fog, it seems. And they went up behind, snuck up behind the British and with the help of some native uh, Americans here in the area. And the British surprised them. They surprised each other. Marquis de Lafayette turned around and ran and hid behind a church that's maybe about a quarter mile down the road. Maybe maybe a half a mile. And, you know, then scurried down Church Road to the Schuylkill and got in boats and swam or ran and rode back up the river to Valley Forge. So, yeah. So you live near history. On top of it. Yeah. Yeah. It was I can't here. hear uh, Lafayette now and not think of Hamilton. That's how impactful that thing was. I didn't see it. It was amazing. I read the book. Yeah. But my son was, was really into it. And I finally, my friend is in the cast and we got ah! tickets. And it was just like ah! every bit as good as the hype. I wanted to, he was right before the COVID. He was supposed to do it in Puerto Rico and I was bound to Puerto Rico and because there was another friend of mine who's this Puerto Rican lady and they both grew up in the same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So it was going to be like this homecoming and then the COVID came and I, they canceled it. Yeah. Canceled everything pretty much. Yeah. 
Um, Didn't get to see so it. the the big question I have for you is that I know that you of your time in Pittsburgh with in Man, the Manchester Craftsman Guild, or at least I believe that's true. Yes. Um, but I don't know. So did you? You grew up in Pennsylvania. You seem to have bounced between around the state. A Pennsylvanian through and through. I'm everywhere. <laughs> in Pennsylvania or just everywhere? <laughs> you have traveled a lot. And, you know, in looking at your, your traveling, I thought, you know, we might run out of tape for this podcast because you probably have some Well, you're not going to talk stories. about everything. You're only going to talk about like one or two things, I guess. Tape. I, you gotta, you gotta, you're using tape. Yeah, I got a real reel in the back. I mean, it's, great. I love it. I traditional wish I had a tape machine. Traditional technology. Yeah. Um, so, but, but did, where did you grow up? I grew, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and there was tension. And I mean, in those days, you know, if you saw somebody with a, a pocket knife, and cleats on their shoes, then that was that was enough to cause and arouse a great deal of suspicion. So we lived in kind of a dicey neighborhood and it was decided that we would, that they'd get me out of there. So they moved me out to the countryside. Well, there was, you know, they asked me where I wanted to go and I wasn't quite sure. So we did this sort of tour of the relatives between Wilmington and Baltimore and Philadelphia. And we arrived in Philadelphia when I was, I think four. And they said, how do you like it? And I said, it's hot and it, it smells bad. So we went to Western Pennsylvania and my opinion of Philadelphia hasn't changed very much since in the past 65 or so years. So I wound up, living with my aunt and uncle in southwestern Pennsylvania. So, yeah. And then from there, yeah, I recognized that it was, the world was large. So I, after having worked in the mill for some time, I say, you know, I got enough money to get the heck out. Yeah. May I offer that it sounds generous that I'm assuming you were talking about your parents offering up, you know, where would you like to go? That that sounds like a generous, um, I don't imagine a lot of parents asking their kids or even wondering if they care where they end up. No. They, of, of a specific generation, maybe these days, like where oh, yeah, we tend to knows? coddle kids to the ends, but you know. No, my folks were amazing. They were really amazing. They, you know, they spoke, they spoke to me like I was a person and, you know, they respected my opinions Yeah, and, you know, it's respected me like I was a small human being. A part of the family, maybe. Part of the family. <laughs> With I opinions was. and thoughts and, yeah. <laughs> and will. It worked. What, did, what Were they creative at all? Did they work in the creative field? No, we're talking about, and I don't, somebody, somebody mentioned earlier because after the summer I started to use I was using the Instagram for like my hobby because I go out and like do these landscapes and stuff just sort of for fun and then when the summer came I thought like you know I started thinking about 
my family and what's important. So I started putting pictures of my family and it's, you know, somebody, somebody brought up that it didn't, it didn't occur to me, you know, that because I started putting the dates on there, you know, 19, like 18, 1890, 1910, 1900, you know, that's when my folks grew up. Yeah. So yeah, they were all a hundred. Daddy was 95 or something when he died. You know, they were all very old. So yeah, I grew up with these very old people. You mean when they had you, it was later in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. My father was very old and my mother was very young. So she, but she passed away around the same time that my father did, which was really sad for her. But yeah. That seems to, um, well, it sounds like they were close, right? For no. <laughs> Cause that's something, you know, you hear of couples whenever one passes and if they're, no, my, the my mother was sadly ill. Okay. Tragically, tragically. So, and my father was just, was very old and his, um, vocation had been curtailed and that becomes very complicated with politics and, but yeah. Well, where did you, um, yeah, some of those photos you were posting, I assume those are the ones you were talking about. Those are pretty amazing photographs. Yeah. And I, I, to preface the conversation of my, ignorance when it comes to photography like the technical side of photography but i mean just those are beautiful pictures thank you they are they're amazing it didn't occur yeah. to me that they were 100 years old <laughs> yeah they, it was just you know well here's a picture of uncle, uncle press and here's a picture of my granddad and here's a picture of grandma and these were taken in 1890 and these were taken in you know it didn't occur to me that they were you know some of them were over 100 years old yeah and the quality i mean they just look great for just based on age itself, you know what I mean? It's amazing how crisp they it are. Is a, it is amazing. I yeah. have photos from me as a kid, and they look not so good, and that's from like the 70s. Well, I have them in a... I'm trying to keep them in Taking some care kind of, of acid-free yeah. thing, yeah. Well, that probably helps. Yeah, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I don't know anything about... Um, actually, I, th- I think... Uh, it's just know. interleafing. You just, you know, go to Gaylords or, you know, uh, one of those... You can get it at the store. Or just get yeah. acid, you know, museum board, museum paper, and you know, has one hundred percent cotton, acid free, no stabilizers or anything, right? And just you know, do the interleafing. Yeah. So you traveled once you ended up. I mean, were you traveling continuously, or was that the the big move from Cleveland to Pennsylvania? That was it until um, until I was able to get bus fare. And, you know, because I would, whoops, I would, a lot of times, a lot of times I would, I'd skip school and get on the bus and go to Pittsburgh. And I mean, I recognized it was really kind of miraculous because the bus would let me off, the school bus would let me off near the school and then we'd have to walk up the hill. But also, that was also the Greyhound bus stop. Yeah. So I, rec- I, I, and it was $3 to go to Pittsburgh. 
So how far was the trip? About an hour, an hour and a half. Okay. So, you know, and then once you get to the Greyhound bus station, you know, you walk in and the guy's going, we're now leaving on trip number eight, number three, Cleveland, New York, Philadelphia, Harrisburg, Baltimore, all boarding at gate number three. And I'm going, I could be going to New York. <laughs> Instead of going to go down here and have some ice cream and go down to Point Park. Right. But right. it didn't take long. You know, I just walked over and said, how much is it to New York? It's $15 or something. So, yeah. It was, as a young fellow, since you're asking about traveling, you know, as a little guy. And I was one of those kids. And the way that it could work in those days, and maybe I digress, but they would literally pin like a little piece of paper on my chest that said Cleveland and they put me on the bus <laughs> and I would sit behind the driver and in Cleveland, I'd come out of the bus and there would be aunt Minnie. <laughs> so that's how I would travel back and forth when I had a little suitcase. Yeah. So when you, when you, when you cut class and you would go to the city, yeah. what was the, was it just to go walk around and explore or were you doing anything? Go to the museum. Oh, yeah. I, I figured out how to get up to Oakland. And the Carnegie? I won. Yep. Yeah. Oh, you're from Pittsburgh, so you know what I'm talking yeah. about. So, yeah, I'd go up to the, and there were, ga- you know, some galleries around in those days. And, yeah, I'd go to the Carnegie Museum and have lunch out there and, you know, turn around and get back home. And was that in. Tried, was, sorry, but the museum, like, what was the choice of that? You know, were you just, were you just interested in art as a kid or was that, you know, my, like, why there as not, opposed to somewhere else, you know? Like the ballpark? Yeah. My folks, no, they were not creative to answer your question. But my mother, whenever I must have been like, because I go visit them in the summer. I would visit my mom and dad in the summer. And during those, I think my mother had taken French lessons. Her mother, my grandmother, had on my mother's side, had given, had made sure that my mother take, took French lessons. So my mother thought that I needed some something as well to enrich my life culturally. Yeah. So she sent me to the Cleveland Museum of Art starting whenever I was about six or seven. It was about two or three summers. So I'd go to the Cleveland Art Museum and take drawing lessons. So they had drawing lessons on Saturdays for the public and that kind of thing. So I went and took these drawing lessons and I thought that was just the best thing in the world. I mean, it was just, you know, this huge big warehouse full of stuff from everywhere and stuff that would just, I mean, when I, when I, I still get it a little bit. Like when I look at Brancusch, or when I stand in front of the Franz Klein, but when I was a little kid, you know, and I'd stand in front of those ab- abstract expressionists, like I would just get all crazy inside. And I thought that if that was, that if, if a painting could do that, I want, that's what I wanted to do. So you knew it. That's, it's funny because I, I mean, I grew up going, I grew up going to the Carnegie Museum and when I went there, for some reason, 
it just felt so exotic from my day to day existence, which yeah. was so, you know, blue collared South Side, whatever. Yeah. And and going to the museum just I don't know. It was like classical music playing in the lobby and it just, there's these big, and it was those paintings, those, uh, there was a Franz Klein, right? Like a big old Franz Klein. There was a uh, Morris Lewis, I think. Yeah. I remember that one. Yeah. And they had, uh, you know, Pollock, if I'm not mistaken. So those blew my mind because I was just like, what the, what is this, (laughs) you know? And uh, it, but it, the exotic kind of like, I didn't understand what I was looking at, but the idea that I didn't understand it was really intriguing to me. It took me a lot longer to figure out, like, you know, to want to be an artist or whatever. Mm. But that I remember those early moments at the Carnegie being kind of like awestruck by the environment of it. I think more people need to know how art, that kind of art, no matter what, can still affect people in in profound and constructive ways. You know, even though, you know, they were born out of conflict and defiance, you know, the the real true message, the motivation, the thing that everybody, all those artists are trying to get to, that level of communication, it, it does resonate with 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 viewers and with people that are able to see them so so in so much so that you know that here are two you know young guys going to look at this stuff you know we're we're affected i made the declaration i think in the 50s you know when i was like four or five years old that i was you know they said what are you going to do when you grow up and i said i'm going to be an artist and they said what well, great that's that's wonderful, but you have to be good. You better be the, the best artist you can be. <laughs> that was the caveat. You can't stink. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't be bad. I had to be better. <laughs> right. But yeah, so because of that, that's why I would go to the museums and all that. I agree. And you know, the one thing that I always think about, maybe it's shaped by time or it's, you know, morphed, but of picturing me standing in front of a Franz Klein when I'm that young and being like, what the hell is that? I've never shied away from, or I've, I've always been drawn towards not understanding something Hmm. or something being foreign Hmm. and wanting to understand it. You know what I mean? And I think there's, you either run towards that stuff or you run away from it. Hmm. But I think what can be useful in artwork, because there's always that critique of people who, aren't artists and they go to the museum and they're like, Oh, I just don't understand it. And that kind of like flippant rejection of something that they don't, an experience or a visual, whether it's visual experience or cultural or, you know, whatever music, like oral, you know, it's, if you don't, if you just shut yourself down from it, you know, it's, it's how we, it's like a block in communication that we really need mm-hmm. in society. And I think if, art can do that it can do it and it really tests the waters in a very subjective weird arty way you know but i think it's so useful in that sense but that's a really difficult usefulness to quantify because we're so at this point in time far away from our communities you know we really these you know the kind of environment that we're functioning in these kinds of these liberal art schools and that kind of thing are sort of bound to the task of helping people understand art 
the arts, why it's important. And then as artists, I think it's our responsibility to be a little bit more inclusive and, you know, and sort of help define and redefine our, our role so that, you know, we're not just providing decoration and entertainment, but, you know, that sort of go back to these traditional forms of art making where they were a lot more inclusive. You know, whenever I would, one measure that I had that my stuff was starting to work is, you know, my devotion to my folks. Whenever I'd bring work home, you know, at first, after coming back from art school, you know, they were just like tepid, you know, oh, oh that's, that's, that's all right. That's nice. You know, right. and, then, and then whenever my stuff started to become a lot more accessible, you know, they were going, Oh, that's all right. I like yeah. that. <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. So I began sort of, you know, trying to make work for my folks which meant like a, a large audience, which meant the kind of resonance and recip the reciprocal nature that that kind of work could, could pull off. Yeah. And then, you know, understanding that so much of that was not so far away from, you know, the traditional work that was being done outside of Western culture. So, yeah. Well, I wonder... That what that the dynamic is between that like that idea of making work that resonates with a lot of people like maybe parents included you know what i mean there's always that push and pull between you know making images and ideas that can speak to most people and bring people together or and but then there's also the idea that a lot of work that just becomes sort of insular and it it feeds on itself and there's a true freedom of creativity between that. I mean, do you, what do you think about the differences between those two constructs or phenomenon? I, I, I believe that we reflect the full spectrum of, of our humanity. I think, you know, that for every you know, Thomas Kincaid, you know, commercial representationalist, you know, that there exists everybody in between all the way over to the, you know, the Howard Freed conceptualists mm -hmm. or the, you know, the Tony Labots or, you know, all these, every Mark, Mark Dion's, all these people are all in between. So we, we are not, and to continue to, you know, stratify ourselves is basically to perpetuate the stereotype that we are a kind right. of artist, right? Yes. What, what we are is we are representative of, of our society. I'm not just, you know, when I woke up, I didn't say, oh, you know, I'm a whatever kind of artist. Right. You know, I'm just who I am. I have these ideas about what I feel like I should be doing. And we do that. So, you know, I, maybe it's, I think it's, I think it's up to us to decide how we need to fit into the society and, 
I don't know if the critics or the historians, you know, want to have something to say about it. I guess they can. But I think what's more important is that we're able to figure out how to include people in the process. Definitely. Yeah. So, well, when you're, you know, making these trips to the museum Mm. and you know, creativity is entering your life from the outside in that sense, or you're engaging with it outside of what you're doing yourself. Um, was there a parallel of like music in the life, in your life, like in the home, or was it important to you growing up? So we were at that time. So now we're, you know, I'm all nostalgic. Um, yeah, of course. You know, so that would have been, you know, way back in the early 60s. So in those days, music, you know, you'd got, you'd tell, you know, news and information came over, you know, you had three choices, four, three. Yeah, because they hadn't really got UHF yet. So, you know, we had NBC, ABC, and CBS. We had, you know, Walter Cronkite. So... Music, you know, sort of came over, it came through, you know, Ed Sullivan, or that's the new stuff. You know, the other music came across on WAMO on the radio and, you know, KDKA radio. And so we, WTAE, so we would get, you know, these, um, whoever was making up those playlists, as in, as in terms of popular music. So we, we got that. And for some reason, we listened to Polish music. I don't know why, but there was like a Polish radio station and we'd, we'd listen to that on Sundays. And that was interesting. But of well, course... We were adjacent to Pittsburgh, so there was a lot of Polish eating and yeah, I, mean, I but, grew up around a lot of Polish people. So yeah. did I, but yeah. you know why we why? listen to it? <laughs> <laughs> I well, like still you said, know. limited options, maybe. <laughs> maybe it was the best of the three choices you had at that. Well, yeah, time. I mean, there it was a little bit more on the radio, but you know, still, you know, we'd get the the church music because my folks were very devout. Mm-hmm. Dora. So, yeah, there was church music and then there was popular music. And, you know, we did the requisite, you know, little black kids singing in the street acapella kind of thing. And so, yeah, music was. Oh, yeah. Well, performative. I did. I had I did percussion for quite some time. And then there was uh, later on, you know, with that. You know, popular music phenomenon that occurred. It was so it was so sort of wonderful and empowering to listen to music that had everything to do with politics and that knowing that, you know, news was being spread through the radio stations, through the music, that a cultural revolution was really taking place and messages were being sent back and forth through the music. So that was just amazing and wonderful. And I didn't realize how widespread that would become until I left the United States and found out how people were, people got it. They were really getting it. 
but so that yeah there was and then you know to become part of that whole garage band kind of thing you know i was not my band was not that great although the, i think they're still around but yeah you play drums uh yeah somebody they've taken over i mean somebody else that's i don't live there anymore so no but i mean that was your instrument in the yeah, band. yeah yeah and the so yeah that was really music was a big deal yeah i mean i picked i just again in some sort of like pre-me nostalgia thinking about taking the bus into pittsburgh at that time i would imagine there was probably some pretty good clubs playing some pretty good stuff at that time you know that i didn't get that until i moved i did i had a little I had a little, a funny little band in Nova Scotia. Um, but you went for, there for school, right? Yeah. Yeah. And which is sort of hilarious. <laughs> Why? I th- well, I mean, it was June Leaf's drawing class. Do you know June? Do you know her work? I, I know the name. I know. I can't. Yeah. So it was June Leaf's drawing class and it was drawing C. <laughs> so that was the name of the group. <laughs> And I think there was a guy who had been, I think, Stevie Wonder's bassist and a couple of other guys from New York, from where you are. And it was such an interesting school. So there was this mix. But then I left all of that. And it was always like music was sort of always on the on the edge. I don't know why you asked about music. That's interesting. Well, this podcast is called Sound and Vision. We talk about music, too. Oh. It's just a huge part of my life. And, yeah. you know, I've always, I, I'm kind of horrible at not drawing comparisons to music with art critique and thinking about art. It's just like a problem I have. So, uh, but I just love music. And I mean, I, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, I didn't realize, I didn't sort of get into jazz until I was in high school. And then, but, you know, there was radio stations that played some pretty great jazz music. Yeah. And then when I looked back at the history and thinking about the Hill District and like Art Blakey and, Freddie Hubbard and all these amazing people that were there. I feel like, oh man, if I were only a little younger and could have seen that, you know what I mean? And then I get kind of, um, I have no earned capital in this, but I feel like, oh, that's, it's cool to be from a place where all these great musicians came from like Cab Calloway for crying out loud. You know what I mean? That's yeah. Daddy, daddy, my father was, um, really into music a lot. So he was somehow involved with the Callaway Orchestra. I think when he was in and around Baltimore. But, you know, I didn't really get into deep music appreciation until I moved to San Francisco. Yeah. Then, but of course, you know, and then when I moved back, being at, in Pittsburgh, being at Manchester, that was pretty intense. The whole Living Masters of Jazz series and... Yeah that whole thing that inspired my living masses of photography series. Uh, you know, that was, it was very interesting because everybody came. Yeah. I got to, you know, reminisce with Max Roach and Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, all those kinds of people. It's amazing. It was, yeah. Pitts, Pittsburgh was amazing. Ahmad Jamal came and gave us his piano yeah, it was That's incredible. Yeah. 
I know, and it's, you know, in the news, it's, I think a lot of those musicians are at the age to where they're leaving us, and it's kind of sad yeah, that how many, uh, Chick Corea just the other day, you know, it, it's, we're losing a lot of the greats, you know. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I just thought of that, and, you know, I was just wondering what your, and then like popular music at that time, there's like different shades of popular music too, I, I suppose. You yeah, know? it was, you know, I would sneak, I would sneak off and listen to Motown. I mean, I would sneak off and listen to popular because, or the other, you know, music. Yeah. Because I was supposed to be listening to Motown. So, and, you know, I, we knew all the words and we would do the little singing thing. But, you know, if I said anything about anybody else, any of those other groups, you know, then I was sort of chastised. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, my cousin Glenn had hundreds of albums nice. and we would just listen to that stuff endlessly yeah that's so funny because in growing up like my you know i did a lot of skateboarding and hung yeah. out with that crowd and you know we were supposed to listen to the smiths and the cure and all this yeah. new, like all that my dad was in the army and like he was um because of his experience there he was obsessed with motown and mm. The Temptations and Marvin Gaye. We had all that stuff all the time. And then my mom would always listen to Nita Baker in the car. So oh, wow. I'd be, you know, singing like Rapture and stuff. <laughs> I'd be singing like a Nita Baker song and then go hang out with my friends. And I had to pretend like I never even heard that stuff in my life. Uh, yeah. you know? It's so strange. It really is. It, it, in the other, there was another experience like that when I was uh, in high school when I started to hear reggae for the first time and I really mm -hmm. liked it. But it, for some reason, that was really not cool to listen to. Like, I don't know why, but it was just like, you wouldn't just say like, yeah, I'm, I'm listening to reggae. You know what I mean? Wow. And then like when you get into college and you start hanging out with people who actually like music for what the music is, not just it's, yeah. you know, like this is the cool music to listen to. Then, you know, it was a deep dive. But yeah, it's funny how that stuff aligns. Um, but what about, so when did you first pick up a camera? Like when was the camera... When did that enter your life? Same. Same thing? Like the late, the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Land came up with this, he sort of cooked up this cookie process. Uh, do you know that story about the Polaroid Land camera? I don't. I'd it's like one of my, to hear it though. One of my favorite things in the world. He, you know, it was one of those kinds of things, right? Where they're on vacation. He, him and his daughter, I think her name was Patty would go out to the Southwest every summer. And of course, you know, what do you do upon arriving at your summer cottage in, in the Southwest, but you know, you alight upon the walkway and you're standing in front of the cottage and then you go and you get the, the Kodak Brownie and you, you know, line up everybody and you say, okay, I'll take a picture. So he takes the picture and his precocious young daughter says, where's the picture? And the father said, well, we have to, you know, go get it developed at the, at the drugstore. And she looks at him and says, why? <laughs> and he says, ah. <laughs> so he runs it. And it's the whole back of the envelope kind of thing. He, you know, writes it down on, yeah, yeah. scratches it down on a piece of paper and goes and meets his partner later that evening over a steak dinner and shows him the formula. And his partner says, I don't see any reason why this wouldn't work. So once they get back to Boston, they started to invent the Polaroid process. And 
they came out. There's this beautiful photograph of Edwin Land whenever he, you know, has a little press conference. And he's just sort of there, you know, with his, an eight by 10 Polaroid of himself that he just took, you know, sort of peeling it back and showing this picture <laughs> of himself to the press after yeah. he processed it for 60 seconds. And it was, yeah, yeah. The rest so was history. Cool. And it's so, so yeah, how that's like kind of full circle that if you tell a young kid today, or show them the process of like developing film, they would say the same thing. Like why it's yeah. just here on my phone. I know <laughs> I don't need to do all that. But stuff. actually the weird, the weirdness is that young people nowadays are fine. You know, they're finding the seduction, Oh yeah, which is what we yeah. all used to, you know, that's how we all were like sucked into the dark room by that yeah. weird magic. You know, that this, this picture emerging from this pool of water, in the dark, you know? Right. So, Well, same with vinyl too. Now you have like artists who would put out limited edition vinyl because you can swirl them and they're going, they're going to town. They're making like red with like blue swirls and like, yeah. you know, like we're doing a hundred of these, but it's that, you know, the nostalgia of something that even might've been before your time, but there's a physicality to it. I think too, that people navigate or sort of migrate towards in a time when maybe that physicality is a little removed. So especially, especially yeah, now. uncle, yeah. My uncle Floyd brought home a Polaroid camera in the late fifties, and you know I thought it was just perfect magic. So and there are a couple of them on the in- Instagram, but yeah, I started using that and you know collecting pop bottles and turning them in and delivering newspapers to buy my. It was expensive. It was like three dollars. Yeah, and. Yeah. So that, yeah, it was, that was the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I started using, so for, I don't know how many years is that? 60, 70, 80, 90, 2000, 2010, 20, 60 years. 60. Yeah. 60 years. I've used some Polaroid material and I've still got some boxes in the refrigerator that I intended to use up last summer, but I'll hopefully they still work. And I'll use them up this year. What's the largest you can go in that format? With Polaroid? 20 by 24. They made a 20 by 24 inch Polaroid that was available in a kind of a residency in um, Cambridge, in Boston. Boston. And Mm -hmm. you could go to the, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's, you can still do that or not. But the deal was, is the camera was so big that you had to do all your work on site. Right. So they would invite artists to come and do that. And I I didn't think I had anything to contribute, so I didn't go. I I had a Polaroid and I loved that thing. Yeah. It was great. I never had enough film, you know. I, like, <laughs> <laughs> I had to like really, you know, edit out what I was going to if I was going to take a picture, it had to be something awesome. Yeah. Because I was worried about losing that film. But yeah, back then it was expensive, you know. I don't know what it's like now, but I remember being young and not, we didn't have money. So it was a uh, few and far between when we would get like film for a Polaroid, but it would, ex- it, it remained exciting. expensive. Yeah. The price our, never came down. Our, our photographs were always that it was that camera that was kind of like this. It was like long and skinny and you, you, Oh, you know, the pocket camera. Yeah. Those. The one ten. Yeah. 
It was brutal. And like we would, you know, you'd wait and get them, you'd pick them up from the grocery store where they develop <laughs> them for you and they were just, man, not so Grainy. Bad. Yeah, just brutal. It was always yeah. the wrong angle. <laughs> yeah. But it's funny because, you know, in looking at your um, your travel that you've done over the, you know, the decades, um, I, I think of, when I think of photography and think about capturing like things that you see, for me in my work, like, you know, when I travel, that's the one time where I'm actually interested in photography. Yeah. Interesting. You know, like I, I always, in my life, photography always seems to pause mm-hmm. fun, impromptu experiences yeah. where the family wants to stop and take a photo and it's brutal. Like I like the on the fly, just taking pictures and, and it's a source of, you know, inspiration and, and a literal source of a lot of the work that I do. It's your work is beautiful that way. And it, it is re- remotely photographic and it's, you know, the framing and the balance and consideration is always, you know, that's what your attention to the, to the edge is, yeah. you know, one thing that I always, well, that's what they teach us a lot in photography school to watch the edge. And it's your funny, work it, is about that a lot. It seems. Yeah. I'm, I'm really, I almost like subconsciously interested in that. The cropping of things I think is yeah. so important. I've never learned anything about that in school or, you know, and I didn't take any design courses. So mm. it's just something that I'm, but I did, I do remember watching a lot of, actually when I was an undergrad at Penn state, I rented like 25 cent old classic movies, VHS from the store on Calder way. And, I moved through all the classics and mm. I remember watching a lot of those movies and thinking that the way they crop things, you know, like North by Northwest or Vertigo, oh Rear Window, yeah. oh. those movies were so, I didn't know how to, to think or talk about it, but I just knew they're really cropping and, and using that, the, what you're seeing is a powerful tool in the emotive content, the formal aspects mm. of it. And it's just, I, I always loved that sort of thing. I guess that's a kind of important, it, it, well, in some people's work, I guess it's more important than others, but it's always been intriguing to me. Well, it's, it's the, you know, you're a painter. So, you know, it's all about, it's, it's nothing but composition. So, you know, that's, you know, we're selecting a single part of, you know, everything that exists around us, you know, yeah. so we're just like taking that one little bit. And so there's something significant about that. And even as, even if you're, you know, a landscape painter, you basically can only see whatever the heck is in front of you. Right. So, yeah, that whole idea of, you know, composing and helping the viewer understand what it is you're looking at, I'm sure is, you know, plays itself out whenever you do your work. Yeah. Well, you, but you, didn't you start in graphic design or a design? Yeah, I, I, I thought I was a painter and... So I tried to do that for a long time, but photography had always been there. It had always been with me. And, you know, then I realized, you know, people have been painting since there were people. And I didn't finally think there was anything that I could contribute to that conversation. And photography had only been around for a couple of hundred years. So I thought I might stand a better chance. It's a little newer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then it became more of a of a like a passport. It became like a tool 
to get from one place to another. And I thought that that was an interesting use of an art form. Yeah. To, you know, to use that thing to, to make a point less about, you know, me trying to make the perfect photograph, you know, because that, you know, people have done that already too. So I thought that maybe I could contribute in another way. And it, so it was for you, the photography was like married to kind of existence in a way that, you know, it was less about necessarily like I'm making this image or like the image, but the experience is tied into that pretty heavily. Correct. Yeah, it was, it was the photograph and wedded with the idea. Yeah. You know, rather than this, you know, trying to make an iconic image. I mean, it'd be nice, but you know, I'm not that deluded. But use being able to use the photograph to affect, to affect change, or or to you know gain admission into a, into a community, or, you know. Yeah, develop a dialogue or advance somebody else's ideas. That is how photography became important to me. Yeah, and you did you studied under Larry Salton, right? Mm-hmm. And was that? I would imagine that was made an impressionable um, impact on your eye. It was Cleveland. It was um, as far as like you know, people that sort of had an impression on me after I'd finished upstairs with all of those, you know, paintings, Cleveland had a beautiful print department as well. So I'd go down into the museum, uh, in the, to the print, to the print area. And there in this long vitrine, you know, this sort of dimly lit vitrine that they had, you know, there were, the Stieglitz and Steichen and Irving Penn and these beautiful contact sheets, these incredible photographs. And I would just, you know, just stare at them. Get up my close and personal. Nose all up on the glass. And those were, those were the things that I just thought were amazing because I hadn't ever seen photographs like that not in our family album. Yeah. So those were the things that made all the difference. So that even my photographs were always very small and, you know, exquisitely done in those days. And even though I didn't, you know, I only had a, t- a two and a quarter square, you know, but I tried to get the absolute best quality I could. I used fancy developer and film developer and I mixed up my own junk. So that was that. So by the time I got to the Art Institute, um, I mean, you know, I should have paid more attention to... So June in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. was married to Robert Frank, who was another photographer. Right. And, you know, we were friendly and I was supposed to do house sitting. And I'd not, I didn't because it was too cold. It was just brutal. I didn't like cold weather. So I moved to the West and I think first encountered there were in those days, back in the seventies, there were popular photographers. There was 
Judy Dater and Jack Wellpot. And, you know, I recall being at, you know, Jack, you know, going back in where they were playing music. Yeah. And Jack Wellpot was on drums. And, you know, so we started like messing around and singing and that kind of thing. So that was that. And then there was other photographers at the time. Hank Wessel would have parties at his house. And yeah, I was Larry's, I was Larry's TA. I was his assistant. And so we stayed friends for, for quite some time. And then there were, you know, of course, a number of other photographers who were very kind and generous. Linda Connor and Jack Fulton. Reagan Louie was also at the Art Institute. And that was during a time where, uh, oh gosh, you know, Marjorie Mann was there. There, were, there was another art historian that was in San Francisco. Um, Angela Davis was my social studies teacher. So it was pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, back, back to music, you know, I was, there was something there. I think it was along green street, right across the street from the police station. That was a lot in the alley. It was called the Keystone corner. And that's where the jazz was. Oh yeah. So after class, you know, we'd kind of go down there and get up in the alley and these cats just wailing. Yeah. So it was, um, and the thing about the Keystone Corner was there was no backstage. The door opened onto the alley. So the musicians would simply go out, like pick up their stuff and go out the back door and load up, you know, their cars or trucks. So you could look in the back door and see these guys playing, which yeah. is what I did. So, you know, these big, you know, you couldn't stand to go inside. It was so filled with smoke and it was amazing. And now is this like mid seventies or late? Yeah. I mean, San Francisco at that time, whoo, must've been something. It had just come off of that whole business in the sixties the hate ashbury craziness right that was really kind of intense so that by 1969 1970 it was a different it was kind of a different world so that by 1975 the social and cultural backlash was happening there were you know because of the new wave because yeah. of the, you know punks and i think that's you know people were running around with safety pins in their ears and noses and tongues and right you know it was really very really intense so that my like i was i was bourgeois you know i was i was really sort of reviled because i represented a traditionalist having come from you know loving all those traditional forms of art making Right. These guys were all about, you know, tearing that junk up and really shitting on it, literally. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that was a, it was a really interesting time. Marcus, yeah, there were a lot of people that were at the Art Institute. Karen Finley, do you remember? Of course. Her name? Yeah, yeah. She was my student. Really? That was the, yeah, she never came to class. So, 
<laughs> the first thing she said when I bumped into her years ago was like, I know you failed me. And I said, yeah, <laughs> you never came to class. Yeah. So yeah, she was my student at the art Institute. And she went on to do, that's the kind of work people were doing, you know, yeah. smearing junk all over themselves and right. sticking other things up there, other orifices. And yeah. So yeah. Getting shot in the arm and that was Chris Burton. Him, yeah. Yeah. Put himself on the car and the, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. I can't imagine how punk that must've. That's what that, people were doing. Yeah. It was that in the was, air. I'm sure. Yep. Everybody was doing really compelling work. Yeah, and plus it just, it, it, it seems like, I don't know, maybe it's forced from the trees, but it felt like there were just these moments that were so saturated. Like, if you think about the idea of Haight-Ashbury in 67, yeah, I mean, that is thick. Like, it's not kind of a vibe. It's like, <laughs> you just imagine it being, you know, immersive. And then you would have these times afterwards where it's just an extreme 180 or a pushback, you know, because like punk just came out of, you know, pushing back from, yeah, you know, all that. Yeah, it just seems like it, it was so severe. Whereas now we have, there's just so much happening at once that like all the, it feels like all the waters kind of like mixed together and. You know, it's interesting that difference. It's a, it's it really is. So I don't know. Like nowadays, I don't know what people are listening to. I don't know. I quit. <laughs> I was traumatized. I was. I had been traveling through Kenya. It was one of the first times I consented to travel with somebody because up until like 1980 almost 1990, I never, I never traveled with anybody. I'd always travel alone. But then, you know, there was some interesting looking person and that I probably should have got to know a little bit better who I was traveling with. I consented to travel with through Kenya who basically wound up going back to San Francisco and finding the guy who was, in charge of watching my possessions and getting all of my records and basically selling them to, you know, for money. So basically she stole my stuff. She took all my records, my entire record collection. There were about 400 pieces of vinyl in it. And after that, I lost interest. I quit. I quit collecting records. I quit listening to music so from like yeah from a yeah from the mid 80s until now i just disengaged yeah it was that traumatic that yeah. you just separated yeah so but when you're in your day-to-day now what are you listening to news yeah my my junior my child likes to she's she's got a voice and she's you know she's so she's been she was classically trained so far she's done a little she did a little piece she just finished a little opera she did a piece at the Fillmore West she you know she can sing yeah so Skylark well, near. she did that's... a little she did a little piece called Skylark it's on the YouTube if you want to watch that. Mary Graham. Nice. 
Yeah. So I'll definitely check it out. Yeah. So the music lives on, even though you've retired from the game. She, I don't know where that comes from. Yeah. You don't want to throw some, you don't want to throw a kit in the garage and just hit the skin sometimes. Uh, so hold on, hold on just a second. Of course. That's so, substantial. So periodically, uh, I'll call, I'll call home with, <laughs> with this thing. So you just had that on stage left, just hanging out. Well, there's two of them. I could only carry one at a time. What so, kind of drum is that? I was in a, I was in a place in Harare, in Zimbabwe, some years ago. And they, I saw this thing. And then there was, I couldn't decide which, which one to get. And then I realized that it was a pair. So I had to get both. Did you, did you get a plane ticket for that thing? <laughs> There's this wonderful thing called, it's like, you ship cargo. Mm-hmm. So it's really I've learned that it's just you can ship all uh, anything for not so much money. Yeah, it's almost the cost of a plane ticket. But yeah, you just go and you go to the cargo, the freight people and they wrap junk, you know, they spray it with uh, bug spray and then they wrap it up really well and then they they pack it, you know, sometimes they pack it with cardboard, maybe they'll build a little crate around it and then they stick it on the plane. And then, you know, some weeks later, after it's finished being quarantined or goes through customs or whatever, you go out to the, they give you a telephone call, you run out to the airport and, you know, they have your package and it's ready and you throw it in the car. And So you still play that thing sometimes? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Now, did you, in your travels to Africa, how many, how many countries have you visited in Africa? They say that I've been to around, I think it's up to like 40 some, which is not, you know, I think there's 200 and something countries in the world, right? So I've only been to maybe, what, 30%? It's pretty so good. Not that it's a numbers thing, because I'm not trying to, you know, the thing that I'm interested in is trying to get like a cross-section of individuals. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Um, I think, personally, I think you learn so much when you travel. It's just a, it's an education that is, I don't think it's, can be duplicated in any other way besides just experiencing the experience of cultures and people. And it's such a beautiful thing. I would imagine that in your time in Africa, and this is maybe a sort of desirable imagination that you've encountered a lot of really pretty great music. Yeah. Yeah, you can pretend even if you didn't hear anything. No, no, I'm just thinking <laughs> it's it's all sort of rushing through my head whenever yeah. you whenever you say that, and I'm because I'm trying to think of, you know, some of the most significant stuff, and it's all, you know, significant. So much of it is significant for different reasons. You know, some of it is of course tribal, and some of it is ritualistic, and some of it. I think one of the most moving moments, and I'll go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, was the is in Cape Town. And we were talking about politics and apartheid, of course. And 
they, because I was talking to people in the theater, I was interviewing them for the my conversation project. And so somewhere on tape, I've got these people talking about the power and the the impact of of these the songs by James Brown. So out of, you know, so many of these, you know, really significant experiences, here I am reacting to James Brown of all things. So yeah. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I remember when I first heard uh Fela Kuti and uh Tony Allen yeah and got into that stuff and I thought, oh man, people in the States like ripped them off. Like it's like a rip off. But then like after studying it you realize those guys came over when they came over to play in America or when they heard sort of James Brown and funk, I mean they took from that, you know? Yeah. And it's like this really interesting reciprocal yeah. kind of, like influence that comes back and forth, you know? It's so wild. It really is. I took a course with uh, Robert Ferris Thompson yeah. on uh, music from Africa and how it, well, I don't know what the title was. Anyways, it was about music, how music moves through time and space from mm. Africa to South America. And, you know, it's yeah. just like really compelling yeah. how it, it, it just like, it changes almost like recipes or something, you know, it's like, it, it changes when it hits another location, it gets influenced by these people and then it, and it morphs and it's, it's such, to me, it's such a fascinating thing, you know? I, it's humanity. Uh, you know, it's, which is the thing to me, I just, despite everything, I, I really love people. I get maybe because I'm one. So <laughs> that's funny. Cause um, my wife was talking about a shirt that she saw on the internet the other day that she wants to get. And it says, I like coffee and about three people. (laughs) 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 Which I thought was pretty great. And yeah, uh, (laughs) but yes, you can be a people person and, and that can be challenged at times. Yeah. (laughs) So are you, now that you've, you know, since COVID, I imagine, are you traveling pretty much? Would you say travel every year pre-COVID? I used to on average, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the year before the COVID, that's why we can average it out to maybe once a year. Because the right. year before COVID, I think I was in Morocco three separate times. So in that one year. So, yeah, I'd, I'd get around. Yeah. And you do like these projects like the African-American garden and like these different projects that you're, you're doing, um, or when you're traveling, are they initiated by a concept or is it a mix? Like, or sometimes you're just going to shoot or just going to look or just going to experience. Is it a hybrid of all that stuff? It's or? all that stuff. I mean, with the African-American garden project, that was in response to, that was a long time ago. So Newt Gingrich was in the somewhere in politics and him and that group of uh, conservative individuals thought that the people living on welfare were getting too much money and too many, to, their food stamp allotment was too large. So they, in, in, a, in, a, in an effort to save the government, you know, oh, almost a million dollars, I think they, um, they cut the food stamp allocation. And uh, so these, they left these women pretty much starving. It left families out in the street 
the people that I encountered literally were in a vacant lot in Homewood, and you know where that is. Yeah. Uh, with tablespoons, with seed packets that they had purchased from the local drugstore, Rexall or something, and, you know, scraping in the dirt, trying to grow food for their families because they heard somewhere that you could actually grow food. So, you know, I basically, I brought some, some Kenyans to the United States to help them understand how to, I got uh, from the Pennsylvania Conservancy. I got dirt. Tom Murphy got on with uh, fences. So we fenced up the, that's when they were doing the fences thing. So we fenced off the property. I got a bunch of fresh uh, dirt from the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. Uh, I got a couple of Africans to come over to show them how to cultivate the food properly. And so once they got their garden going, we took a bunch of them and put them on a plane to Kenya so that they could go and see what it really looks like to have nothing. So, you know, they thought they had it bad by getting a food stamp reduction. So then there was this wonderful exchange of individuals that went back and forth across the Atlantic for a number of years. In fact, not long ago, I'm looking over there, like, you know, last year's That's over the there. past. <laughs> Stage right. <laughs> like that's, that's the past. So this is the future. So they called up, you know, and said, things are going. We, this was in Pittsburgh. Yeah. We still got the garden. It's still going. We talk about you like every year. So yeah. So that was one that worked. It's pretty cool. I mean, do you get back to Pittsburgh often? Are you? Uh, uh, okay, okay. Hold on, hold on just a minute. I had to go way back into the past, but no, I had to go back to last week. So was it last week or was it? I can't remember. They just mushed together. So I went to visit. Um, I needed to talk to my friend, Tadao, who's across the street from the Manchester Craftsman's Guild in the building in the Casey Industrial Park along the Ohio River. And because I, we I was talking about portfolios and portfolio cases and wood carving and that kind of thing. So I went downstairs to say hello to my friend Thad Mosley. Oh, man. And he, he's amazing. He said, you know, because I needed a piece for an auction. And he said, oh, you need a piece for an auction here? Take this. Oh, my <laughs> he gosh. He gave me this. It's amazing. He gave me this sculpture. It's, <laughs> it's got this beautiful little, like, little butterfly thing in it. Oh, yeah. That looks so cool. He gave me this stool. So, yeah, that was about a week or so ago. And, 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 hang on. <laughs> Then I went across the street to visit Bill Strickland that I used to work for, and he gave me a copy of his book, Oh wow! Make the nice. Impossible Possible. So, yeah, I get back to Pittsburgh. You do get back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> a lot. That's amazing. So, I've, been, I've been wanting to talk to that guy, that that is, Mosley, for a you while. You better hurry up. I know, and I've been reaching out. I'd really love to talk to him. He's Just such go. An, he's such an amazing Just, uh, just you bet, The guy's like 90-something years old. Yeah. 
so and he just finished this huge piece he's he's got he's got an exclusive with the gallery some gallery in new york so you can't buy a piece from him anymore right so i was lucky to get that because he didn't sell it to me he donated it to the auction right so he can do that but if you want to talk to thad he's usually in his place like every day yeah, my brother sent me his that book, the new book that he did with Karma, the gallery. Yeah, that's the gallery. And it's a beautiful book. Yeah. And it was, I mean, and I'd be nervous because the jazz talk could go for a long time. He, he would sit there and talk with you all day. He's about a jazz, jazz head, yeah. yeah yes, he is. He's into it. I love it. Go um, take a little phone or something and set it up so you can film him, yeah. film, video, whatever, and digitize him. And just get him going about about jazz, and he'll tell you everything there is yeah. to know about because his collection is incredible. If you wanted to try to catch him at home, you might have to set that up. Right. But he's usually in the studio just about every day. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? It's incredible. Oh, the guy's an inspiration. That's a, and the work is beautiful. He's really just, amazing. I mean, this yeah. is like, I think I'm going to have to bid on it myself. <laughs> for sure it's so hard to have it there and then all of a sudden it's not going to be there anymore. that's i'm trying not to get it that's why it's way back over there because right. Behind I don't the get drum. it is it was, <laughs> i don't want to get attached to it right um so with what are you working on now what's um i mean other than you are a influential and and cherished professor at penn state i'm not I wish I was. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. But hey, they're lucky to have you. Well, but I mean, what, are you working on? Because I'm, I'm guessing you're not traveling quite as much with no. That was current situation. That's where we were. I was. Um, oh dear. So it's the eulogy. It's the the evolution of obscurity. These people in the Alimi Triangle, which is sort of like Sudan. Ethiopia is kind of over here yeah. and Sudan is over here and then Kenya is kind of over there. That's more like Ethiopia. But that's that's Kenya kind of. And then <laughs> Sudan is like that. So, but the Alimit Triangle is that little funny little place that exists between it's like no man's land. Mm -hmm. South Sudan and Ethiopia and Kenya. And of course, this is an area where, you know, nobody's claimed the territory or it's hard to draw a border and the Turkana migrate back and forth with their cattle. And because of, you know, all these political influences, you know, the Chinese and the Italians put an influence on the Ethiopians to build a river or to dam up the river and build all these, you know, big hydroelectric projects, the place is being starved for water, which is causing famine. So the Turkana that have existed, you know, for a very long time, that, you know, this is where we came from. Lucy was discovered, you know, the three million year old human, humanoid fossil was found in Ethiopia and then 200 miles south, which is where I go, Turkana boy, who's the two million year old humanoid he was discovered there and 
so these people have been there for a long time. Yeah. Even if they migrated north from Lake Victoria to the source of the Nile in Ethiopia, they've still been, you know, the, that's a million years old. Those, pe- those fossils of humans that Louis Leakey found were discovered, you know, and they're proven to be a million years old. So, and now they're being tech, technologied out of existence. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing to do to stop it. So I figured I'd go and listen to them and, you know, make some photographs and document the fact that they were here and that they lasted this long before we killed something else. Before they put a Starbucks in the, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I can't, it's, it's, it's very impressive. Like just the sheer amount of what you've seen, you know what I mean? That's, that's a lot. Thanks. It's pretty cool. And I still don't think it's enough. No, I mean, I, it's, um, like I said before, I, I've, every time I travel, I, I learn so much and, and I feel yeah. like I, I wish I could do it so much more than I do do it, you know? And sometimes having a family and, you know, and doing and like working and, you know, all those things that get in the way of just aimlessly roaming the globe nonstop. And plus, it's funny, too, the beauty, I think, of photography is that kind of mobility, you know, whereas like, you know, if you're a, a dyed in a wool painter, you, you've kind of. Well, you don't have to, but you're probably going to be in a studio like that is probably in that studio a lot. And it, it's not so mobile, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's that's kind of a beauty of um, of working with photography, I imagine. It, you know, some people photo, just photograph only in their in their backyards or you know around you know their neighborhood, but it like it goes right back to what we started talking about in the beginning, that you know the artistic community is represented by the popular by a population of individuals and we just you know we look like who we are so i have always been interested in you know uncle floyd bought me the encyclopedia what world book encyclopedia and i read it and um i I needed to be there you know whenever i would see pictures from all these countries you know i just i wanted to be there so yeah that and the fact that it, I understood how easy it was to go there. So, yeah, travel became very important. But, you know, having a studio practice would also be very nice, I think. Yeah. Balance, right? It's all yeah. balance in life. I wish I could paint more. Yeah. I wish I was better at it. Me too. That makes two of us. <laughs> you're, you're, really, you're really very good at it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a work in progress, right? We're all a work in progress. And we should collaborate. Take any one of those images you want to and make yeah, it. Yeah, we we got to do that. We've talked about that and we have Go to Go right ahead. We have to uh, yeah, that's going to be good. Um well, where can people check out? I mean, I know people can see you speak. I mean, that, that TED Talk is online and and they can get a a glimpse into your, you know, you're speaking and, and your we work through that. But as far as like seeing your images, what's the best place for people to see that? Cause you do use the gram as kind of a special uh, avenue of certain images, right? 
Instagram's your hobby. Hobby. Oh, page, right. That's yeah. That's just yeah. the hobby. Right. Um. Yeah. The other my other work is almost. I'll just say it. I'm just gonna say it. It's almost finished. The website okay. is almost finished. Not quite, but on it's on. It's right there on the cusp. I could just make it go live, and then wait until we get more content. You know, so I may have to do that. Well, so, for the, you know, for some of the listeners who may not be familiar with your imagery, I mean, if um, you look up Lonnie Graham, I think that you know they'll find some pictures. Just they're Google just, it. They're just, just Google yeah, it. they're just portraits. It's the same picture. I describe my paintings to a lot of my family. Yeah, it's just pictures of buildings and the sun and yeah. trees and and whatnot. You know, and that. keep it keep it simple in that. Yeah, <laughs> Yin's guys have seen it before. Don't worry. About yeah. It. Oh boy. <laughs> well, hey, it was great to take all this time. To I mean, we never get we never get a chance to really talk this this way. So it was no, it was real. and we should probably do do it more. Yeah, this, no, this was, was nice. Great. I appreciate Definitely. the visit. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Thanks for doing it. Yeah. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast at soundofvisionpodcast.com and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at soundofvisionpodcast for images. Also, you can leave a rating and review on iTunes to help support the podcast. And uh, many thanks to Lullatone for the intro-outro music, Michael Lovett for the introduction, Golden Artist Colors for their long withstanding sponsorship and also the New York Studio School. Make sure you check out their new program that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. You can find out more about it at nyss.org. Check them out. And many thanks to all you for listening.